0: This is Cantus Firmus, Kingdom Theology for Christians Without a Country. With ego, yo. Greetings, you are listening to and or watching Cantus Firmus. My name is Cody Cook, and um, my guest today is Kerry Baldwin, and I'm trying something new. I've got a co-host. So here he is, the Andy Richter to my Conan, the Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson, the George Fenneman to my Groucho Marx, John D'Angelo, the anti-war war vet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's the thing, man. I, um, I hate, uh, podcasts with pre-show co-host banter. Uh, but I'm going to, oh, I want to try it anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. like the man who's been divorced four times before, I think this time it might actually work. Um, so let's, uh, let's chat a little well, bit. What do you, uh, what have you been up to? Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, still not divorced, which, uh, is just thanks to the grace of God, Amazing. Grace of God and my wife. Um, but when you think about it, like this time it just might work as far as the divorces go. I mean, it's true, because you'll just die. Like maybe this podcast if we don't nail this. Um, in which case it did work. Is it am I bantering?
0: I, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm not I'm not good at bantering. So I have always been one of those people that when people like want to talk about sports or the weather or something, I, I have like I freeze up. I have, I've got nothing to contribute. Yeah,
1: I'm the worst so talker of all time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I always want to try to bring it to you know, the abortion. abortion or the uh, you know non-aggression principle or something. Um, how many kids do you have right now, John? Because I can't keep track of all your kids. Yeah, I
1: have. Um, I have three kids currently, and um, I have instituted a, a strict no urine pregnancy test rule in the house. So we'll never know when the next one's coming until my wife is showing. Uh, which is nice.
0: Does that apply to your wife
1: as well, or just oh, you? Oh, yeah, know, yeah, or... no, it's, it's a r- radical cessation housewide. I I check okay. the cabinets every day.
0: Okay, <laughs> all right. So you've got three,
1: and who knows, maybe another one on the way. Cody, have I ever told you that my mom would curse me? I was a terrible child, and my mom would curse me on a regular basis that I would have five kids just like me, and <laughs> I have five boys just like me, and I have three boys. Yeah just like me and my wife is adamant that we do yeah. four just one more just one more and i can't stop like waking up in cold sweats thinking about twin boys oh yeah finishing it off like my mom's some weight like haitian witch doctor just hexed me yeah I- i'm gonna bleep this there, there's there's a i used to listen to this american
0: life a lot on npr mm. oh you better it was, uh, was a guy npr yeah. <laughs> loser Yeah, that that was before everything was about um, you know trying to figure out how they could bring around Ibram X Kendi, but um, um, the uh, the, the, there was a bit where uh, somebody was talking about this friend of theirs they used to see all the time, and then he had twins, and then like they didn't see him for months, and um, and so they went to go like talk to his buddy, and he he made it like a part of the show, you know, and the guy said, you know, they they call it having twins, but they shouldn't call it having twins; they should call it having two babies at the same time. Anyway, yeah. So I've I've got three. Which um, somebody who's who's a faithful listener to the podcast, that there might be a couple. Um, would, will know that that I had that I had two at least. But I don't know if they know I had three because we kept that one more quiet. Yeah. Well, myself. um. Thank you. Yeah. It was it was actually um, the pregnancy was you know my, my wife was ready to have the baby. It wasn't like terribly rough, but you know, but the 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 birth itself was so easy. And it was like within a couple hours, right? She had the baby, um, and so everything was looking good. It was running smoothly, and then he gets stuck on the way out. I don't think I don't know if I told you this. Me? No, I did. I did. Yeah. I did. I messaged you about it. Never yeah, yeah, he too. gets he gets stuck on the way out, and um, um, he like he he was like doing it was like it was like a Jack Benny move, you know? He just was like this, and um, he like got sort of stuck coming out because his arm was there, and um, I mean they had to like you know they're in like nurses to like kind of you know push back on the leg and help them pull and stuff and so this kid comes out blue and i'm like i don't think that's the color they're supposed to come out but i don't know and they're just like being quiet you know so i really don't know like they're not like freaking out but they're not like well we'll muscle top or anything Mm -hmm. so um uh and then like they bring him over to like put him in this um you know the thing they put him in the weird plastic thing that's really uncomfortable but the baby screams all the time um and they keep doing this thing, they lift up his arms and legs to see, you know, I guess I didn't really know what they were doing, but they kept lifting up his arms and legs and they would just flop right down. Mm-hmm. And I guess what they were checking for, I found out later, was a startle response. Mm-hmm. He didn't have this, um, you know, instinctual, um, you know, reflexive startle response. So anyway, you know, we don't know what's going on, basically. It's just, you can tell that something's up, something's weird and um, so it was really frightening. And then um, they didn't want to tell us what was going on, but they, they used the word. They said they talked about using a certain kind of cooling blanket or whatever. They, they were saying, we want were we're to transfer to another hospital because, you know, they've got a better NICU or whatever. Um, and so I look up the cooling blanket thing and then I figure out, OK, this is something they give to a baby when uh, they're concerned about your brain damage. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, they, no. didn't,
1: they didn't explain That's any cool. of that.
0: Not at first, they, but th- they used that word. And then they also, there's also used the word floppy, which I didn't Google because I didn't assume it was a medical term. Um, but my dad did, and he, like, got the whole thing about what that actually can mean. Um, and so, yeah, so it was really scary. But um, within, like, a couple like a couple hours later, they, like, they were like, okay, we're going to transfer him, but we'll let you see him or whatever. And then we're like, we're waiting, we're waiting. And um, they'll come back and give a little update every now and then. And they're like, oh, well, you know, he's starting to respond a little bit more, but you know, not as much as we want to see at this point, you know, we would expect a little bit more. Um, and so anyway, I actually, I actually asked nurse about it. I was like, yeah, I looked at this cooling blanket thing. Your concern is this, right? Because it's like, they don't want to tell you what they're concerned about because they're worried they're going to stress you out. But then what happens is you, when you don't know what to worry about, you worry about everything. Right. Right. So it's like, um, so anyway, then it's, of course the prayer is, you know, you know, God, you know, let him, you know, not have you know, these severe, you know, let him not have these kind of, you know, brain problems or whatever. And then it's like, if he does, I pray that they're not severe. And if they are severe, I just pray that he's alive. You know what I mean? It's like, you kind of do this like negotiation thing with your prayer. Um, and, um, yeah. but yeah, man. So he's, he's doing really well now. Um, he smiles a lot now. He's kind of at that stage. Um, he was born like a month early. So he's like two months in some change. Actually, he's getting, actually, he's getting a bit close to three months. he's been smiling for a while now. Uh, you know, much more responsive. He sleeps a lot and fusses a lot and eats a lot. But um, I think that's pretty normal. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so that's we're we're very relieved. And it's our first yeah. boy. Um, so, you know, which I don't really care that much, but I thought it would be fun for a change. Um, and my wife is like, you know, I've only had girls. I don't know if I'm going to be able to bond with a boy. And then, like, you know, and she was like, I was stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Um. she's she bonded, obviously. Dude,
1: He's gonna like only have eyes for her. It's crazy. My if I get my the baby up from naps, he's immediate he's like eight months now, so he's like you know, more mobile. He's like crawling out of my arms, jerking his head around looking for her. Like where is she? Where is she? She's where's where's the lady? Where's my mom? It's it's nuts. Yeah, it's the boy the boy and mom thing is cool. And it it it's the only the potential inverse connection that i would have with the daughter is the only like selling point i imagine for having a girl because the stakes just seem so high like it's scary to think about
0: oh you're, you're like worried about like you know her getting older like having a like a you know douchey boyfriend or something is well that i mean the...
1: like no um just i i had boiled it down to this pithy line that like i can make my boys or like do everything i can to make my boys good men but I can't do that for every other man that you know mm-hmm. the candidates uh, in courtship and sure. just look at that. the um, yeah. when we were growing up remember how like the war of the sexes was like a thing like it was like I don't know it was a TV show or what but it was just like talked about I remember hearing the term several times mm-hmm. battle of the, sexes, battle right the sexes yeah yeah there you go and um as I've gotten older, I've realized like women have just unequivocally lost. If you think in just strict male and female terms, like like sex is so casual and so non-committal. And, and like, I just, I worry about, I would worry, I, I'm saying this to a guy with daughters as I have not. I'm, these are just my internal dialogues. Like, I don't know, I stress out about that. Like I wanna get sucked into that world and I don't wanna like shelter her because then so I don't know. She'll become a stripper yeah. or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, my, my daughters are pretty young yet, but it's it's working out pretty well. I mean, uh, <laughs> the um, our, our our second daughter um, did have that kind of thing where she just was very attached to me, like from very early on. Um, and that's that's mellowed out a little bit. So like, my wife doesn't feel like you know crappy all the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it like really bothered her um, that you know. I- Ivy, our second daughter, was just very hyper-focused on me. Um, she's still, like, if if she somehow knows when I'm about to leave the house, um, you know, I can get up from, like, the chair or whatever, like, 50 times, but the one time I'm actually getting up to, like, leave, she, like, knows. And she, like, runs and gets her shoes and, you know, just th- locks the door. Yeah. She, it's anytime I go somewhere, she, she wants to go with me. So, um, it's, it's pretty cool, though. I, I think it, it could be... I hope you have a daughter, because I think it would be neat.
1: Yeah, um, i I'm open to whatever, but it's funny as you were saying that she notices that you're getting up. Yeah. The same sort of thing had, had struck me with my kids that I'll do something really, um, what to my mind, like it doesn't, doesn't register, but like I'll put my, I don't carry my keys unless I'm going out, but I put them on my belt and I usually do it in my bedroom and I'm usually doing that without anyone around, but the sound of the keys must like catch their ear and it, struck me just this, like just recently last month or so that like their entire world everything they've ever observed is like this stupid little house like they they don't know anything else so like they're hyper focused on the routines and stuff it's like these little things that i wouldn't notice and yeah they're catching me like leaving without me having said it or whatever yeah man they're cool it's cool doing the parenthood thing it's just you seem like you're probably more patient than I am. I'm not a I'm not a super patient. I don't know. I don't know. I try to be. Um
0: I don't know. I I, I struggle sometimes. I I've, I've gotten more patient, I think with time. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Yeah, It helps that What's that? Your oldest is 10? Uh just about yeah, going to be going to be 10 next month. That's crazy. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it is. Um, well, speaking of kids and how great they are, uh, do you want to talk to Carrie Baldwin uh, about the uh, sort of anarchist arguments for abortion? Yes. Yeah. I'm or, sorry. Against abortion, not for
1: abortion. Yeah. Against abortion.
0: You ready to do that, Sean?
1: I am. I. Um, I don't know why I, my my brain got so dark there, but um, I thought you were going to make a terrible joke, and instead you. You rounded it out to just the logical conclusion that kids are great. And therefore I did we did a segue portion. Thank you, Carrie Baldwin for all your yeah. work, but yeah, let's do that. Let's talk to Carrie because I'm, I'm not very useful at the moment as a co-host. Okay. Stand-train.
0: Well, you're going to be here with, with us through the conversation. So I, just, <laughs> I hope you'll be a little useful. Yeah. Don't. All right. All right. John, we're going to talk to Carrie. All right. All right. Carrie Baldwin is an independent researcher and writer with a BA in philosophy from Arizona State University. She's a Christian anarchist who's been featured on John Stossel TV, The Bob Murphy Show, but not the Tom Woods Show, is a regular <laughs> contributor at the Libertarian <laughs> Christian Institute, and her website is mereliberty.com. She's also in the process of formalizing her work into a theory proposal for peer review. Anyone interested in seeing this work come to fruition can support that through monthly membership at mere slash membership. I'm excited to talk with her about abortion as both an ethical issue and a political one, both from a Christian anarchist perspective. So thank you, Carrie, for taking time to talk with us.
2: Thanks, Cody, for that great introduction. <laughs> You're so welcome.
0: <laughs> uh, anyway, but before, uh, before we, uh, we started recording, we were, uh, John had asked Carrie if she'd been on Tom Woods, cause he seemed to remember her being on there. And apparently that is not the case, which is a shame, but, Uh, Okay, so Carrie, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, background, particularly as it's relevant to the abortion
2: debate? Oh, that's a fun one. Um, I actually grew up uh, with my parents, pretty active with Right to Life. And so I distinctly remember sitting at the dining room table, stuffing envelopes for Right to Life. Um, I even went to a handful of protests I remember one protest um, on the University of New Mexico campus and we were out there holding signs <clears throat> um, and I just remember gosh I must have been maybe seven or eight and I remember this one woman driving by and she had this huge smile on her face like very friendly smile and I noticed that she was flipping me off and <laughs> um, <laughs> And I just remember thinking to myself, "That's so weird that somebody would object to this message." Um, anyways, I so I was I was pretty well steeped in the pro-life movement. Um, did you know some some speech and debate stuff in the public school where I took a pro-life stance? It actually uh, went better than you might expect. Um, when I got into college, I actually had uh, Decided to double major in medical lab science and political science, and my goal with that was to uh, become a genetic researcher and uh, do uh, oh, what is it called? Cord blood stem cell research as an ethical alternative to embryonic stem cell research. So that was my like original plan. And, uh, that ended up not coming to fruition. Uh, I did go into medical lab science and, uh, but I did that through the United States air force. Um, when I got out, um, I got out because I was pregnant. So I got out early, just shy of three years, um, got out when I was eight months pregnant. And, uh, then after my first son was born in February 2006. About three months later, I found out that I was pregnant again. <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise with my daughter. And so I ended up um, just dropping out of school um, and going back to uh, or becoming a you know full-time stay-at-home mom. Um, it was during that time I ended up um, in a Uh, social media forum that now doesn't exist, or it doesn't exist as a a social media forum. It was called Cafe Mom. It was basically like Facebook for for moms. And I was in some some abortion debate groups. And that was really the first time where uh, I was exposed to uh, different views about abortion. So not just stories about women who had had abortions, and why they why they had them, but I also interacted with all kinds of non Christians who were pro life. Uh, I distinctly remember meeting a um, a Wiccan woman who was pro life, and found out that there are a ton of practicing pagan pro lifers, and mm-hmm. that blew my mind. Um, but I think that the the biggest thing for me was hearing the stories about women who had gotten abortions. And uh, a lot of it had to do with things that I was experiencing in my own marriage, poverty, um, bad relationship. I ended up divorcing in 2016 uh, for abuse. And so at any rate, uh, but when I was in this, this forum, this was probably I want to say about 2007, 2008. Um, once I started hearing those stories, I just basically shut up about the pro life thing. Uh, I didn't, I was still, still felt like I was pro life, but didn't feel like I had really a good answer because I could see that there was some complexity to it. And it wasn't mm-hmm. as simple as saying, oh, these women are just, you know, murderers who are trying to get away with you know, uh, issuing their responsibility for what for for things that had happened in their life. And so I looked at it very, very different differently. In 2015 or th- or 16, uh, I heard of an a movement called End Abortion Now, uh, which was sort of re- trying to reinvigorate um, a staunch, pro-life anti-abortion position, and uh, what I had heard from them was that they wanted to make abortion first-degree murder, and if the death penalty was available in a state, they were perfectly okay with that being a punishment for abortion. And I thought, whoa, no, (laughs) like, I am pro-life, I don't want babies aborted, Um, but there is a serious disconnect. Um, yeah. pro life, but
0: I'm, I'm not also pro death.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's like okay, Um young life. Yeah, well, you know, I my first one of my first um, podcast episodes was uh, titled uh, "How the How the Pro Life Movement Is Aborting a Pro Life Era," hmm. and uh, I used a study from a pro-choice person actually from the University of Maryland who had studied the pro-life movement and just talked about the issues that, that were happening. There's, I think she described four streams. She, she called them of the pro-life movement. They were disjointed, uh, wouldn't cooperate with one another, you know, so you've got the, the political stream and you've got the activist stream and you've got, um, the, uh, What's it called? The crisis pregnancy centers, those people who are actually offering help. Um, And it was just really interesting to go through that information. And by that time, I was a libertarian. I had had some, you know, education in Austrian economic theory. And so when I revisited the abortion issue, I thought, oh, a lot of this, a lot of the reasons why women seek abortion has to do with economics. And I was like, why don't we approach it from an economic standpoint? And of course, uh, when I, when I published that episode, um, I posted it in a reformed libertarian group and it was not well received because I was being critical of the pro-life movement saying, Hey, you guys, you guys have a problem with your messaging. You have a problem with your solutions. Um, you have, and it was, it was also a critique of this end abortion now movement, uh, which eventually became the, uh, abortion abolitionist movement. Uh, there's a statist version of that. And then there's an anarchist version of that. I don't, I don't have any problems with the anarchist version. Um, but yeah, it was not well received. Shortly after that, I, uh, did an episode explaining the Fallacy of the Christian feminist view of abortion, which is essentially the safe, legal, and rare argument. Uh, so I sort of tore that one apart. Um, but yeah, that's how I got. <laughs> that's how I got into, out of, and back into the abortion debate. Okay. So, um,
0: yeah, and I'm really interested. Somebody who's listening may may not sense exactly where we're going with this when we talk about from an anarchist perspective. Um, it's going to be complicated if you're pro-life because most pro-lifers uh, are, are arguing for a state-based solution to mm-hmm. abortion. And so it's like, well, if you don't believe in the state, what's your solution to abortion? Right. Um, and so, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, maybe we'll, we'll talk about the ethics of the question first. And, but before we actually discuss the ethics, um, with some of the science and uh, medical background that you have, can you shed any light on whether the fetus is actually a human or just a clump of cells? Because I've oh. heard tell from the, uh, believe the science crowd, that a fetus is substantially the same as a sperm cell. So is there any truth to that?
2: Oh, no. In fact, uh, the science for a very, very long time is, was absolutely definitive in that uh, a new, unique human life began at conception. Um, now, I've qualified that a little bit when I, when I speak about at conception, because conception isn't a moment. It takes about three days for it to Mm -hmm. be completed. So I say that there's a unique, a new unique living human from the moment conception is complete. That's how I phrase that. Um, But it's been uh, incontrovertible up until I would say maybe five years ago uh, when I don't know exactly who started it, but basically medical schools started trying to talk about the fetus, in terms of being a cancer or being a parasite, I mean, it was it was very obviously trying to rewrite what was yeah. uh, decidedly so for for such a long time. Now, I'm not a I'm not the kind of person who talks about settled science. I absolutely believe in testing, retesting, and challenging. Um, but there's not a good reason to think that the, uh, that the conceptus, right. The Zyko is not a human being.
0: It's interesting how narrative, um, you, you understand how it could shape things like politics or philosophy, or, or I guess maybe even English departments or something, but it's weird how it starts to reshape things that we think of as more objective, like science and mathematics. And so Mm -hmm. now we have to sort of attach these, these sort of evaluative judgments about um you know who's oppressed and who's an oppressor and and you know <laughs> um it, yeah anyway it's it's that's kind of bizarre but um yeah so okay so the 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 science has been uh universally or or, or um largely universal in its acceptance that, that uh life against a conception conception now they would say that this sort of new um shift are they denying that it's a human? Are they denying... What, what, what exactly is the... Is it just that they're just giving a different evaluation of, of what this thing is?
2: Um, so, basically, what you had with Roe v. Wade was uh, the... Oh, I forget his name. The justice who who wrote the majority opinion, Blackman or something like that. Um, yeah, but the... Case. Yeah, the, the the majority decision, one of the things that it stated in there was if science could prove that that was a human being, then the uh, fetus would be protected by the 19th, 19th Amendment. I shouldn't say human being. If the fetus could be proven to be a person, okay. then it would be considered, you know, it would be protected by the 19th Amendment or 14th, 19th? I'm getting my amendments confused.
0: 14th, 19th is the women voting amendment. I Thank
2: think. you. 14th yeah. Amendment. Mm I
0: think that's the privileges privileges and immunities.
2: Yeah. So then the conversation switched to, okay, is the fetus a person? And it was actually a philosopher by the name of Marianne Warren who suggested that the fetus is not a person and gave a philosophical argument as to why. Um, And the problem with her argument was that uh, her conditions for um, uh, for, for personhood, if you applied them to living humans, there were certain living humans or born humans, I should say, um, certain born humans that wouldn't qualify as persons either. And so that was a major flaw with yeah. her argument, but nonetheless, uh, pro-choice advocates grab- grabbed a hold of it and they're like, oh, a fetus isn't a person And you know maybe she was wrong about X, y, and Z, but still fetus is not a person. And then you had the pro-life movement react to that and start trying to enact personhood laws, having the government mm-hmm. define personhood. Um, yeah. th- and so that was that was a bit of a problem. Yeah, because
0: uh, well, personhood is more of a hazy philosophical category, right? Whereas yeah. scientifically, we can speak with more definitive uh, definitiveness about what something is. Um, but personhood is person is not a scientific term, right?
2: Right. It's a it's a personhood. What what makes us a person? A complete person is a philosophical debate. We don't want the government defining that. Um, I actually have an article up on LCI about life versus personhood. And uh, I basically show how the Roe v. Wade court um, begged the question about personhood because they recognized the personhood of the pseudonym Roe, Jane Roe, Mm -hmm. as representing a real person, even though they couldn't see the, you know, that real person. She wasn't actually physically there. They didn't, like, Jane Rowe was just, you know, it was just a stand-in name. And in the decision, they acknowledged her personhood and then turned around and said, we can't acknowledge the personhood of the fetus because we don't know what personhood is.
0: Mm. Okay.
2: So that's
1: the kind of, the, the, I guess, the groundwork here. So. We've can I, can I, I interject think... for just a sec? Yeah, go ahead, Carrie. I had this like 10,000 foot view of a, the abortion issue. I, I, I think I've taken a similar, um, like, waxing and waning intellectual approach to it because it's muddy. I work in healthcare, I've been an ER nurse for four years. I was an EMS before that. I've seen plenty of, um, you know, like pending miscarriages and difficult mm-hmm. uh, pregnancies and uh, bad pregnancies, botched abortions. Um, I appreciate that it's a really difficult topic uh, to wade into when you get into like the nitty gritty of the individual cases and um, they're not simple and it's, there's nothing black and white about this issue, but um, the conversation about like the fundamentals has seemed to evolve with the political conversation and the, um, the, the cultural in my opinion, I've become more and more, uh, interested in like this rightist argument about like cultural degradation or, or, or whatever, Mm -hmm. like we've just lost the plot, um, on, on whatever civilization's foundations are. And abortion seems to be a good, um, litmus test for that because we see, as you're talking about this, this argument about like personhood, like that's a huge shift in my lifetime, my, not only my lifetime, but like my my cognizant period of time uh, in my early thirties of like remembering safe, legal and rare being a term of the Clinton administration to uh, like laughing maniacally with SSRI eyes about how like we know it's a baby and that's that's what makes it so great. Like it's mm-hmm. like a, like an, a very uncomfortable and bizarre, yeah. cynicism underlying so much of like the current and maybe it's just like Twitter memes and stuff but like there's such a callous reaction to the reactionaries of the right who burnt political capital trying to keep like fertilized eggs from you know being terminated and stuff I, I wonder if you land somewhere in that that same camp as, as I do that like this is just this this muddy, um, marker of of a broader systemic issue that like you know I, I don't know what the numbers are on like a, a other countries as far as abortion, but I know we um, are unique in that we we overrepresent um, per capita for abortions globally um, and it's like insane numbers like it's clearly just uh, the majority convenience. Um, mm-hmm. we have extremely liberal timelines in most states. I'm from Connecticut. It's like, c- I could be aborted right now. I think my mom could just go, um,
0: my understanding is even compared to Western Europe, our, 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 um, policies are fairly liberal in yes. the United States.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: which seems That's strange. Fairly. <laughs> some states allow for late-term abortion, elective late-term abortion. New York yeah. went out of its way t- to to codify that in law as if to say like, we're so woke. You mm-hmm. can get a nine month pregnancy because, yeah. because you want to. And like, Oh, it's yeah. rare. Like, okay, cool.
2: Yeah. So I live in New Mexico and we don't actually have, we don't have a law. It's basically, abortion has basically been decriminalized here. So we don't have any laws that protect abortion. Um, they recently, I think as of last year, uh, repealed the, um, the pre Roe v. Wade, uh, abortion prohibition law that was on the books, um, here, but they don't have, like, we don't have a constitutional amendment protecting abortion. We don't even have a law that says abortion will be protected.
1: Uh, More it's not codified. Boris, how, how are they defining abortion when they are doing these prohibition? Because you had mentioned it earlier too, like, If anyone's medical chart uses the word abortion, that's an abortion or like, are we talking like a DNC versus, do do, do you know offhand?
2: Yeah. So this is, this is actually a problem that, that, um, that I noticed after the overturn of Roe. Um, and actually, uh, I do want to say one thing, uh, to your previous question. I believe that the abortion issue is a canary in the coal mine sort of issue. So, if you're not familiar with that idiom, canary in the coal mine um, is the idea that, uh, well, canaries were were used in coal mining to indicate whether there was toxic uh, gases that would kill a human being, right? So, if the canary died, uh, you knew that toxic toxic gases were around and the coal miners would have to to, uh, evacuate. So, I believe that abortion is a canary in the coal mine sort of issue, Uh, for example, one of the reasons why a woman might seek abortion is because she doesn't feel like she can afford uh, to actually go through with, you know, the, the uh, healthcare cost of pregnancy. Lots of people don't realize that insurance doesn't cover a whole heck of a lot. Um, private health insurance doesn't cover a whole heck of a lot when it comes to pregnancy. It can be very, very expensive. Well, that's an economics issue. Right. Uh, when we talk about the cost of healthcare, there are reasons why it costs a whole lot. So rather than um, ridiculing a woman for what is essentially a market signal, saying "Hey, healthcare is too expensive," the pro-life side is just like, "Oh, you want to murder your baby?" No, we should be looking at the cost of healthcare. Like women are sending a market signal saying, "This is too expensive. If I cannot bring new life into the world, that's too—it's—it's it's too expensive." So I just want to make that point. Um, and the anarchists as, have
1: a great, a great line there because it's almost entirely state-derived.
2: Mm-hmm, it's not as if you yeah. have
1: some like radical free market and, you know, we just can't afford babies anymore.
2: Yeah, there's, there's actually a really great um, video, uh, animated video that was uh, based on an essay written by Roderick Long uh, explaining how government fixed healthcare in the first place. So this is, this was back during the industrial era. And basically, doctors were upset that consumers were setting the price of healthcare. Shocker. Like, yes, this is why we want the free market, because consumers set the price. Uh, We know that, well, doctors were offended by that, so they went to the government. They are like, hey, do something about this. We deserve, you know, to be paid more. And that's how insurance companies and medical licensing came about. So literally, government fixed healthcare by making it more expensive on purpose, Um, And it's something I point to with my left-leaning friends when they bring up the cost of healthcare. I say, "Look, the government caused this to begin with, Um, so we don't need more government."
1: There's an awesome book. uh, It's kind of obscure. I found on the the Mises Library. I think um, for my my bachelor's uh, nursing capstone project, which I wrote on uh, abolishing medical licensure uh, occupation. Mm -hmm. Occupational Licensure, which was a really popular position to take. Um, Richard Hamowy wrote that uh, the title is ridiculous. It's like medical, the history of medical licensure from 1901 to 1974 or something. And it just documents um, with all the receipts and great citations of, of just the incestuousness of like the AMA and all these state boards. Yep. It's just wild. It's a, worth,
2: it's, an, it's, it's insane. A yeah. I, I, I I'm going to have to look that up because that's... I think that's that's very relevant. Um to your question about how abortion is defined. So this is something that I figured out after the overturn of Roe because you had um you had a number of of states with legislation like uh draft legislation that was almost identical in in every state which means it was drafted by some you know pro-life activist organization um and then it was submitted out to a number of state, you know, legislators who are, who are willing to submit it. So um, at any rate, as I read through it, uh, what I realized was that, um, well, first of all, the left and the right, when they talk about abortion, are not talking about the same thing. When the left talk- talks about abortion, they're talking about the end of a pregnancy. So, how that pregnancy ends, uh, whether it's miscarriage or stillbirth, or um, a, you know, a, a DNC or mifepristone, myth, those sorts of things, it's all abortion. It might be a spontaneous abortion or it might be intentional, but they have a very broad definition of the word. When the right talks about abortion, they are talking about something very specific. They are talking about a medication or procedure that initiates fetal demise. Intentionally. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh,
2: um, So they're talking about two different things. The problem is, is that the way that the Republicans are going about trying to enact abortion prohibition is almost identical to the way um, gun control advocates would go about regulating or prohibiting guns, right? So they don't deal with the murder aspect. They deal with the goods and services aspect, and they say, okay, you can get a gun um, in only these circumstances, right? There are these exceptions to to the rule, and they have to have these regulations attached to it. They have to have these specifications. Well, if you look at the way the Republican uh, anti-abortion legislation is written, it's written in much the same way. Uh, You may not get an abortion procedure Unless you know it, it falls under one of these exceptions to the rule. Um, so, how, how,
1: how many years until we have to pay a two thousand dollars tax stamp for an abortion?
2: Oh god! Oh my gosh! It's it's You're it's so rather right.
1: that's a that's a good yeah,
2: it's it's rather ridiculous. And I've pointed out to uh, conservative pro-lifers that when it comes to abortion, they are very socialist, and they do not like the comparison. But it's true. Um, you know, when I talk about uh, there needs to be more options available um, for women with unplanned pregnancies, they're thinking, "What's wrong with adoption?" Right? What's wrong with this one option? Well, that's the kind of thing that Bernie Sanders would say about healthcare. What's wrong with this one option? Um, so the way that the Republicans go about doing it is not not good, and it's not going to be effective. Um, but one major thing is that they define they define abortion differently from how the left defines it.
1: I've come to an uncomfortable, but I think uh, ex- extremely rational conclusion um, as far as re- abortion in an anarchist uh, utopia, <laughs> if, if such a thing exists, and um, it could, and it's that abortion uh, elective abortion will be. Um, present. Now, first of all, do, do you agree with that premise just generally?
2: I think that you are always going to have women with unwanted pregnancies. Right, uh, That's never going to go away. Um, whether abortion is, or I should say the degree to which abortion is present, I think is going to depend very heavily on the market. That's available to her. If the options available to her on the market, whatever they are, are safer and less expensive than an abortion, she's just economics says, praxeology says she's not going to choose abortion. And actually we've we, that's like we've,
1: the underlying.
2: Yeah, we've there's there's um, there's data to support um, the fact that when Uh, the cost of an abortion is too high. Women don't choose it. The other thing that, um, they found is when a woman feels like her most basic needs are met, she will not choose an abortion. Um, so, you know, we address Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to
1: thing is like these, these women are not coming up in like a normal culture and they're, these moms are like being asked to raise moms their kids by themselves and like single mother households with several kids and poor incomes. And like, that's the,
2: well, uh, again, it's a canary in the coal mine issue. Like, yeah. Okay. If you have a ton of single women who are pregnant, we should be asking the question why, well, you've got a ton of cr- conservative Christians who are like, well, because they can't keep their legs shut. And it's like, really? That's the reason. Um, you know, I my my own story, which I alluded to at the beginning, uh, has to do with being in an abusive relationship. And I didn't know I was in a, in an abusive relationship while I was in it. That was twelve years long. Um, and what I learned after my divorce and after I started going through therapy and learning, you know, all the things that I needed to learn. One of the things that I learned was that um The red flag signals for a toxic or potentially abusive relationship are completely predictable. You can learn these signals um, and avoid those sorts of relationships. And it occurred to me, you know, we have sex education in public schools. Nobody teaches our kids how to avoid toxic and abusive relationships. So again, economics problem right? We need services, whatever, and I'm not talking about public services, but options available on the market, uh, whether it be curriculum or classes or whatever to educate young men and women, boy, teens, boys and girls. There's no, no reason why we can't teach our kids these things that says, hey, um, if a person is doing X, Y, or Z, That's toxic. That's very bad behavior. You don't want to get involved with this person. Or if you're doing this, you should stop because you're mistreating that person. There's absolutely no reason in the world why we can't be teaching people those things. And um, so, you know, if the problem is, oh, you have a bunch of single mothers who are having to, you know, raise kids on their own, we should be asking, why are there single mothers? And if they're telling us, at those, you know, at the abortion clinics, when they fill out the little survey about why they're having an abortion and they check off a box that says, I, you know, I'm in a bad relationship, we should believe them. Sure, um, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's my thought on that.
1: Yeah, I just, I, th- I want, I think about these, these things as almost like externalities of a this deeper, like, yeah, the women are certainly in, in terrible relationships and that impacts the, the decision making, uh, the casual like hookups culture world is I'm sure apart and like the free sex thing. I I don't know if you listen to Dave Smith. I, I know, or I think I know that you're like vaguely familiar with him. You guys have Mm -hmm. interacted in some respect. Um, but his, his whole thing post Roe B. Wade was, was about that. And I, I think that there's something there, but like, there's this deeper seated loss of like, communal human like humanness is the thing i always Mm -hmm. like go back to um yeah and like i I don't if you you take all of these arguments to their logical conclusions i i don't imagine that like hunter-gatherer societies were were having this debate because of like the extreme value even if it was just like callous productivity of human life and like today it's just like i don't know you're just going to take a a username I was going to use or something like that. There's nothing to it. And it's really, it's really sad.
2: Well, even the uh, more reactionary responses from uh, the more extreme side of the per-choice, you know, side of this debate, which tends to be, you know, sort of in your face. I know this is a baby and I'm killing it and yay. Um, I actually see that as a trauma response. And that's, you know, another thing that I learned post-divorce was about trauma and the impact on people and how that manifests in their behavior. And one of the ways trauma manifests or can manifest in somebody's behavior is by lashing out. And so, um, even those women who are, uh, being very extreme in their reactionary responses to the pro-life movement, uh, I see that as a cry for help and just a trauma response. And I think it makes a lot of sense uh, given all of the stories that have come out about abuse, especially abuse in the church. Uh, that's been a huge issue uh, that I don't think we should be, that I don't think Christians should be sweeping under the rug if we really want to address these issues Um you know, address the abortion issue, we have to address these these other issues as well. There's, you know, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive.
0: Yeah, as you said, a trauma response, I think in some cases, just a troll. <laughs> a <trolling laughs> behavior, right?
2: Well, there might be, there might be some of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I say that just because I see similar things on the right and then with libertarians as well, but um, on different topics, but. hmm So you've talked a little bit about um, kind of what what we may be doing wrong in in the pro-life movement or just as a culture, Um, and that seems to also carry uh, forward to the the types of arguments that you're seeing um, pro-lifers make. Um, And so uh, I guess one question I might have for you is um, where do you think that that these typical pro-life arguments fall short? And what is it that that is different about the way you uh, argue uh, for a pro-life position, um, that you think is superior?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I would say where the pro-life movement, um, and I call it the, the conventional pro-life movement, where the conventional pro-life movement falls short is by not taking seriously the reasons women give for having abortions. Um, I you know, just having a ba- I I don't have an economics degree. I have a basic understanding of Austrian theory, right? Read Henry Hazlitt um, and, uh, you know, some Robert Murphy and some Ludwig von Mises. It's not in depth, right? But I can look at uh, the reasons that women give for seeking abortions and I can say, this is, these are market signals, right? Now, when I tell a Conservative pro-lifer, that you know that explanation. These these are market signals. We can do something about this. They think that I'm giving credence to that woman who sought abortion to begin with, and that's a mistake, right? Um, it's uh, first of all, I'm not giving any sort of credence to the solution that they came to, which is to have an abortion. But I am giving credence to the fact that women are economic agents. They are making decisions about their own bodies. They do have agency. And what they are seeing in their own lives when it comes to the prospect of bringing new life into this world is they see a number of threats. And, uh, you know, what makes women women is our ability to have babies, Uh, it makes absolute sense that a woman's instinct about whether or not it's safe to bring a baby into the world uh, is legitimate. Mm -hmm. right? And the reasons that she gives for feeling like it's not safe are legitimate reasons. Now, again, not saying the solution is go have an abortion, but those are legit reasons for not feeling like it's safe to bring a baby into the world. And so Republicans conservatives, um, don't, they, they, they put their blinders on when it comes to, uh, evaluating the reasons why, why women seek abortion. And that's a huge mistake. Um, not just because it disconnects them from the ability to have compassion for a woman who has sought an abortion. Um, but it disconnects them from an opportunity to actually provide, um, for those, those needs in the marketplace. Uh, and that's where it's really, it's really necessary. While even in an, in, in a anarchist society, I would say abortion should be technically illegal. It's not going to be the legal prohibition that ends abortion. It's going to be the market response that ends abortion.
0: It's kind of interesting because it seems like what conservatives sort of, this like, well, it's like, um, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So when you're a statist, any solution that's not a statist solution doesn't seem like a solution. Right. Um, and and um, so, yeah, they, they want to attach blame and, and, and find a way to sort of send the state after that person.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, um, and so I think it, it seems like what one thing that you're trying to sort of do in general is, is kind of value the, the concerns and the rights of the mother as well. Um, so... Um, I want to mention briefly that the, the debate that you had with uh, Walter block, where he, he makes what you, what was been called an evictionist argument, which mm-hmm. is, which is an interesting um, position on abortion because it tries to recognize both what the pro-life say, side says and the pro-choice side says.
2: Mm-hmm. So the,
0: it recognizes that the pro-lifers are correct, that what we're dealing with here is a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says, nevertheless, <laughs> um, the, 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 the woman has bodily autonomy. And so an evictionist argument um, would be something more like, um, well, you know, um, especially from a like Walter Bloch's kind of more libertarian perspective, um, you know, yeah, a fetus has a right to her own life, um, but she doesn't have a right to her mother's body because the mother was the first person to homestead, uh, which is one of those kind of libertarian terms, her body, and uh, no one has a right to use what belongs to someone else. And so as a result, Bloch would argue that a, a pregnant woman has a right to expel a fetus at any time, even if that expulsion results in the, in the baby's death. So, um, you know, Block seems to be sort of trying to recognize the rights of both. Um, so wh- wh- where does your sort of attempt to recognize both the, the rights and, and, and concerns of both parties in this? How does it differ? Why does it reach a different conclusion than, than Block uh, reaches?
2: Yeah, so um, I would say two things. So, you know, Block acknowledges something from the pro life side, which is that, you know, um, a human is a human and has rights from the moment of conception. Um, I am a staunch advocate of a woman's bodily autonomy and agency. And um, I'd say that one major difference between Block and I is that I do not believe that, uh, the rights of mother and offspring are at odds with one another. Hmm. Um, so he tries to solve the problem by compromise, right? That's what he calls it. It's a, it's a principled compromise. Um, so, uh, you know, he would say that you only have that, that eviction may only result in fetal death, death if it's, um, before viability, right? So he and I would actually agree post viability. Um the problem with his argument is that every single human being comes into existence in the same way and every single analogy that that he's offered doesn't work because the um the analogy is about an already existing human being being on somebody else's property right but in the case of uh new life right you have uh, conception which is the resulting consequence of an action previously taken by the mother and you know, and, and another man, right the father, whomever that is. And if that's the case, libertarianism is not a kind of philosophy that allows people to be free of the consequences of their actions on the contrary. It says we're responsible for the consequences of our actions. We're free to choose. We're not free from the consequences of our choices. And so uh, number one, this is the way that all human beings come into new life. So this is actually a situation where we don't apply an analog or attempt to apply an analogous situation. This is a situation where we should be deriving normative law from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, there's no other situation where a human being just emerges um, into existence uh, without any without any choice. Like, there's no analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so we should be deriving normative law from it. And if we believe that human rights are inherent in our humanity, given to us by no one, then that means that, the woman's rights and her offspring's rights cannot be at odds with one another. They must be reconciled. Uh, um, and in that case, so,
0: we- so, so, if, I, if I could stop you to summarize, it, so it sounds like kind of what you're saying is, um, if we're, if rights derive from nature, we're talking sort of like a natural rights perspective, this mm-hmm. is the most natural, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, process that, that, that life gives us. And so, um, yeah, we, we assume that there there couldn't be a conflict because otherwise you can't actually have natural rights at all,
2: right? In fact, I think some of the the lingering rights questions that we have, uh, common property is is one of them, would actually be answered by working out how the uh, how the woman's rights and and the fetus's rights actually work together. Um, there's a lot of questions out there that are sort of Left in the abstract because we don't know how to deal with it. Well, if this is the place from which we derive natural law, then it's setting the precedent. It's not. It's not some place where we're trying to apply something that's sort of analogous. Um, that's that's a backwards way of, of addressing it. Now, with that said, this this hasn't been done. This reconciling women's rights and and the rights of offspring has not been done. Um, and, you know, I would say that's what, that's the thing that I'm trying to do with, with my, with my, uh, my research and what I want to submit for peer review is actually reconciling those two. Cause I don't believe you can have a consistent theory of human rights where man's rights are absolute, but woman's and offspring's rights are relative to one another. That just doesn't make sense. That's not a consistent theory
0: that sounds like a really interesting project. Yeah. Um, and that, that was the thing you mentioned at the beginning that, that, uh, people have the opportunity to sort of, uh, participate in, um, through the monthly yes. membership, you can, they can kind of see what you're doing and, and your work on that project. Yes. Right. At merelibertycom slash membership. Yeah. Um, uh, can, can I
1: interject for a sec?
0: No, absolutely not. John.
1: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, um, one of the one of the like fundamental issues that I think gets lost in the evictionist argument, or um, that I <clears throat> I appreciate that you like in the debate with Walter, which you did excellent in. Um, there, there's this like this giant elephant in the room, from my perspective, which is as a guy, I will never you know bear a child. Um, however, women's entire bodies and like their sexual appeal from a man's perspective is their fertility and reproductive system. Mm -hmm. Um, And women are born with all of the little ovum that become fertile eggs and eventually Mm -hmm. fetuses that we can or cannot abort. And Mm -hmm. when we talk about evictionism as this um, parasitic use, Mm -hmm. let's let's take non-consensual insemination uh, off the table for just a moment. Any mm-hmm. consensual sex that leads to pregnancy is like as natural a usage of a woman's body as can be, uh, mm-hmm. e- even more so than sex itself. Uh, consensual yeah. sex. So I, I like, w- men and women. W- women's greatest gift to humanity um, is motherhood, and and I think where we've really missed the ball is like. Talking about that, celebrating motherhood is this, this incredibly empowering thing. Like, cool, yeah, you're a CEO at 40, and now you're like looking back and wishing maybe, um, you know, you did go through with the surrogacy or whatever. I don't know, but like, there, there's so much loss in women that don't have children, and um, because they can't, and then women who elect not to find themselves at like, you know, 35, wondering like if it's you know too late. And I, I just don't think we're grappling with the fact that like women are. Are made whether you're a Christian or not, made from their moms to make children, and it can't, yeah. you can't evict a child from its like natural coherent vessel. Yeah. That's a goofy way to like sure. very libertarian.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, well, it, I it, it let me say it, let me say this about that because one of the things that I brought up in the debate was that uh, woman owns a means of production, she owns the ultimate means of production, right? Mm. And if we're willing to think about, see, the thing is, is that for at least, I'm not going to say most of human history, but most of, we'll say the classical liberal uh, view of human history. So since the enlightenment, at least, women are not thought of as economic agents right? They, um, you know, you use the word vessel. Uh, I know what you mean by that, but there's been, uh, conservative Christians who have referred sure. to woman as the weaker vessel, which I think is, uh, an erroneous interpretation of scripture. Um, and that's sort of, uh, it's, it's minimizing what exactly she is. Right. It's calling her an incubator, basically. And the thing about a woman owning the ultimate means of of production is that everything, everything, all the choices that she's making are directly or indirectly connected to her reproduction. And this is true throughout her whole life. Right. So when she's developing, right she's from from infant to adulthood she's developing the capacity to have babies like physically psychologically emotionally um, if her par- you know if her parents are doing her their their jobs she should be learning socially you know how to how to care for people um, how to care for babies right uh, most teen girls end up becoming babysitters right making money as babysitters um, and then you have young adulthood that is focused on um, not just, you know, making a life for yourself, so getting an education, being able to, you know, pay the bills and, and have a place to live, but um, also, you know, the, the dating aspect, learning about relationships, um, being able to uh, see which is going to be a good match for you. And then there's, you know, assuming you get married, there's motherhood right? And there's the actual direct, okay, now I'm making decisions. Um, I need, you know, this amount of income in, in place. We need this many rooms in our house. We need, you know, this sort of furniture. We need, you know, all sorts of things. So those are all economic decisions, right? But she's making those based on the fact that that she is producing a new human. And then you have, um, you know, after after that, you have, uh, your your children are growing up, becoming adults. So your job is to help them become independent, help them become adults, right? Now you're starting to to pass on what you learned back here. That's still all indirectly related to your reproduction because that's that's your progeny. And even as a grandmother, right? When you're when you're old, you're no longer fertile. But as a grandmother, you're still. Um, you're still doing the motherly thing for your own grandchildren, or maybe, um, you know, other kids in your community, in your church, that sort of thing. So, when we look at the bigger picture, every decision that she makes is directly or indirectly related. In fact, what we're starting to learn right now is that um, a woman's health and wellness is directly related to her fertility. Her fertility is actually a signal that there might be other. Health issues going on, wrong with her body, and if she's in tune with her fertility, she can identify things like cancer in her body. So, one of the problems with the way the conservative pro-life movement has treated women is that she's she's just an incubator. She's just a mother. She doesn't make all of these decisions, right? It's the husband who makes these decisions. It's the husband who who um, you know, who leads and, and and does all these things. And certainly there's a place for masculinity and husbands and and fathers and all that, but we don't want to minimize the role that women play in this. And so I think probably what we're missing from our culture is not just a respect for motherhood, but a respect for women as economic agents making decisions about their body when they're going to have kids, who she's choosing as a mate, who she's not choosing as a mate, right? All of those things go into her bodily autonomy and and agency. And if we took that seriously, for example, we might teach her how to avoid a toxic or abusive relationship, right? We might teach her how to actually understand her fertility and track those things so that she can stay on top of that. We might teach her how to um, choose a job that she isn't going to um, end up regretting because she has to sacrifice motherhood for that. Or maybe we end up respecting the women who do end up choosing to be childless, even if they are a minority. So, uh, you know, I think the, the scope mm-hmm. needs to be broadened a little bit or quite a bit when it comes to a woman's role in her bodily yeah. autonomy and agency. <laughs> yeah, I want to, I want to
1: apologize. I, I think I was doing the very thing that I, I take so much issue with, which was painting in, like, black and white binaries, broad strokes. I You're absolutely correct that, like, the minority of women who are choosing not to be, you know, mothers are, um, you know, a distinct minority, and yet um, you read about these issues in, in – uh, central and western europe of of um often economic or cultural issues of of women who are not you know even considering childbearing until they're in their 30s or 40s Mm -hmm. that are um you know ceos who are writing times op-eds about how they're trying to like post hoc justify a life of decisions of avoiding uh motherhood just to find themselves feeling unfulfilled and so it's it's not as if um women are this like single useful variable and and you know i if that's i hope that's not like the, the point i yeah. was coming off to No to i making, didn't
2: but. i i didn't get that sense from you but i felt like it needs to be said because i do know that yeah. um you know there are, are a lot of libertarians i would say especially in you know the the Mises groups will say who recognize the necessity of men and women they recognize the necessity of masculinity and femininity, and they want to draw that out. Um, but I think it's important to point out from a woman's perspective how that can be done wrong, and it has been done wrong in the past. You know, if we if we recognize women as economic agents, as having bodily autonomy and agency, as being able and capable of making decisions about... Um, you know, about her body, about when she's going to have kids, if she's going to have kids. And we teach her that those are her decisions, that there are trade-offs, you know, she might choose to take a career path and she might come to regret that, right? It's a trade-off and she needs to consider that. If we're honest with women about what their options are, then they're better equipped to make those decisions. And you'll probably have women who still choose to be motherless, but won't experience so much regret. Um, and that's perfectly okay. We can be okay with that and still have right. a society that recognizes the necessity for, for masculinity and femininity. Um, you know, the, the feminist movement really screwed things up in that way, um, by just trying to eliminate those, those distinctions. Yeah. I mean, uh, didn't, the water's about, yeah.
1: consent for motherlessness or,
2: yeah.
0: As you were talking about kind of women as economic agents and and how the sort of conservative pro-lifers don't rec- recognize that, it's it's kind of occurred to me that there's been, I think, a lot of naivete, um, even in like kind of previous eras where where you did have a much you know stronger argument that there was that you had a patriarchy in place and that women had lesser rights. Um, we still, I think, we assume that that means that the relationship between men and women was simple and not this sort of complex negotiation. Um, which, you know, it, it, uh, this is kind of a more negative example, but I think of like Macbeth, right. Where you have this, you know, Macbeth's, you know, wife, Lady Macbeth, who's doesn't really technically have any political power, but still has quite a bit of power because of the influence that she wields, you know, on her husband.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and that's, that's a more negative example, but I think it is obviously more complex. Um, you know, the, the role that women have in these relationships on the other side though, um, you know, I think that a lot of these kind of pro-abortion arguments, um, much like progressive arguments about the sexual revolution, the transgender revolution, they're rooted in kind of a rejection of our nature, like an alienation mm-hmm. even from our nature, mm-hmm. um, and usually, often because we can sort of have some artificial medical intervention to change something, like the pill or abortion or yeah. hormones or whatever. Um, and so, it's essentially an attempt to redefine our nature. We don't want to. We don't want to acknowledge what we are. We want to be something different, and right. I think. Maybe some of some because we can do that now, um, it gives women a lot more options, and I think a lot of women can benefit from that. But I think some women will also find that maybe the sort of artificial thing that we've constructed, <laughs> the social yeah. reality, um, it could can actually be an alienation from how we're designed or evolved or however you want to describe that. Um, that could actually make us unhappy, right, in the long run. Yeah. Um, and and just there's an example I always think about. I read a book from a a pro-abortion philosopher named Eileen McDonagh, um, and there's a quote in it where she talks about the puritanical notion that sex leads to pregnancy that we dispelled with <laughs> in this of um, the sexual revolution because the Puritans came up with that. <laughs> yeah. it, it, but, but her argument is, we live in a new era now. We've got the pill, abort. You know, sex. There's no organic relationship now between sex and pregnancy because we cut it off. Yeah, um, I think. And so now I, that that's a bygone era's notion.
2: Yeah.
1: I think that's what I was trying, I, I'm driving at the essence of, is this, like, this is a unity between man and woman, yeah. and mm-hmm. man and, and woman, and um, anything that, that takes away from that and removes, uh, even even the, the, the term economic agency, I don't know what our timeline looks like, and I don't want to, I don't want to, like, further the conversation if you guys got to go, but the, the term economic agent almost seems like a purposeful uh, tactic on your part as far as like the mises crowd goes um mm-hmm. which, which i appreciate because yeah us neckbeards really only speak one language but um <laughs> the the idea that like a, a woman's place in society like it's just the fundamental perpetuation of our species it is is anything less than than miraculous and that we we need to both value that and recognize that um like there's this, this weird tension between like the the freedom of sexuality in today's day and age and and the, mm-hmm. the like push push button nature of of every uh, solution to problems, including abortion, where you can like just show up at some some clinic and like they'll just take care of that problem for you. And like it, yeah. you know we we've we've reduced everything down to these these really. Um, like anti-human decision-making processes, and like, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think you did a really good job of describing that, Cody. Like, it's it's precisely that that like that's what seems to be at issue here is like man and woman, regardless of your, you know, I know we're all Christians yeah. here, but like, I don't I don't think it has to be a Christian argument per se.
0: Yeah. There, there, there is definitely a, a version of of kind of I think what we're saying, John this kind of far right, um, kind of new right, you know, these, uh, well, John's gone, but I'll keep talking anyway. Um, right. <laughs> like the the the, kind of the, 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 uh, the, the incel neckbeards who sort of, um, you know, talk about, um, you know, nativism and, and, you know, these, these important distinctions between men and women that they sort of, uh, you know, make very concrete.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and anyway, um, which I, well, I, I certainly don't want to make, uh, the, yeah. That, right.
2: I want to, I want to make a comment, uh, though about, sort of this this transition that, that women went through with women's rights. So the major part of the women's rights movement w- happened with the second wave. And what happened with that was that women went from um, having their legal rights recognition wrapped up in their husband mm. uh, or their father, um, which... Literally, that ended in 1971 with a Supreme Court decision called mm-hmm. Reed versus Reed, uh, which is where the the Supreme Court decided that a woman's uh, legal rights were not bound up in her husband. So that ended in 1971. This is this is still fresh in human history. Um, but it went from a woman's rights. Um, or the guarantor of the of women's rights being the husband or the father and it went immediately over to the state being the guarantor of women's mm. rights. And what as libertarians what we know is that we are the guarantor of our own rights because our rights are inherent. But uh and while individual women may have intuitively picked up on this. Uh, certain individual women have uh, intuitively picked up on this, by and large, women were never taught that they were the guarantor of their own rights and that they Mm. could make these decisions for themselves. And I think that's really important to understand because when you talk about uh, the feminist movement, the feminist movement treats women as though they're victims of nature, as though their most powerful feature is the greatest detriment to them. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a flaw. But the, on sure. the conservative side, women are still victims. They're the weaker vessel, right? And they need to be protected. And that turns into an enfeebling, infantilizing kind of thing that is also not healthy for, for women. So what libertarianism actually brings to the table is a recognition that a woman is a a human in her own right, has all of the, the agency and the ability um, to to be her own person in her own right, and that she is the guarantor of her own rights, and that she uh, the decisions that she makes about her body and uh, who she decides to have relationships with are legitimate. And I want to add one more thing, because Jordan Peterson has has brought this up, and I think it's a very valid point. Um, he's talked about how uh, human women. So this is distinct from female animals. Human women are the sex selectors. They're the ones that say yes or no to sex. And we know this because if she says no, and a man does it anyway, he's raping her. It's a crime. We know this. Um, So she's the sex selector, which means, and women have a great effect on men. Right? If a man is interested in a particular woman, he's going to go out of his way to impress her. Well, if she understands this about men, women actually have the power to improve society just based in the, in her decision in whom she's going to have sex with or not. right? Yeah. So that's a very powerful position. And uh, if women understood this, which most women don't because we're not taught that we're the guarantors of our own rights and that bodily autonomy and agency only ex- extends to abortion. Um, but if we understood that, we would actually be improving or contributing to improving society because it's offering a motivation for men to improve upon themselves as well. It's an upward spiral. A spiral. Instead, what we have is a downward spiral, right? Uh, women think that, their only exercise of autonomy, uh, bodily autonomy and agencies to have an abortion. Well, that's just, mm-hmm. that's just creating the downward spiral. And we're living that right now.
0: Well, I was gonna say another, um, uh, makes me think of another philosopher and, and psychologist who predates Jordan Peterson on this, uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, made a, <laughs>
2: uh
0: he had a similar bit uh, said more crudely um, mm-hmm. about, um, uh, I, w- I won't use the exact language that he used. Um, but basically, he and he—you could argue that it's uh, objectifying in some way. But it's similar to these these, these arguments about economics that we've talked about. Um, that if 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 sex were a stock, it would be plummeting because it's been devalued because it's been given away too easily. Mm. Well,
2: that's <laughs> um, it, yeah. That's interesting.
0: Um, but yeah, okay. So. Um, I don't want to keep you too, too long, so we, we really need to maybe just address the political aspect of this because I'd imagine sure. there are people listening saying, okay, so we know you're an anarchist. We know you don't believe in the state. How can you meaningfully be uh, pro-life then? Because usually what, when, we, when we meet somebody who says abortion's wrong, but I, I don't want the state to do anything about it, we call that person pro-choice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, um, exactly. Why are you not pro-choice? Um, and, um, you know, can society meaningfully address abortion from a pro-life perspective without using the tool of the state?
2: Yeah. So this is a great question. Um, when I talk to minarchists about this, usually it involves uh, explaining to them things about criminal justice reform and how, you know, where our our current system actually doesn't produce recidivism. It doesn't produce re- uh, deterrence. It's ineffective, right? Um, now, I would say that if we're going to be pro-life the and actually expect to end abortion, the stronger mode of civil governance is anarchist or, or polycentric. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because with the monopoly state, even at a minarchist level, our only option is trial and error with that existing government. And the problem with that, and we've seen this in American history, the problem with that is that there's no uh, conceivable way of keeping the state limited. And so you might get some bad decision makers in there that grow the government over the course of four years, and it never goes back down right? With polycentric law, you, uh, th- it's, it's not a society that is absent civil governance, right? I would say Christian anarchists, um, and I'll just, I'm going to, I'm going to plug a new podcast that I'm doing called, uh, Re- the Reformed Libertarians podcast, where we're going to be talking about, uh, Christian anarchism and how this, this actually pans out, not just from a theological perspective, but in, uh, but a philosophical perspective as well. So in polycentric law, you still have, uh, magistrates, judges, they're private that, you know, these are, these are people who run their own businesses as, uh, dispute, uh, resolution or adjudicators, right. Um, and the good decisions that, come out of those, those, um, you know, those adjudicators become law, right? Um, so what happens is, is if we are able to, um, adjudicate the issue of abortion, right? Obviously, we're, we're assuming that everybody has agreed in, you know, in a given area that, uh, abortion is a violation of the non-aggression principle but then you have all of these these situations that come up these nuances, these things that, that John talked about miscarriage I don't think the miscarriage qualifies as a as um, as abortion, but you might have a situation where you know somebody wants to actually try that actually adjudicate that. So the benefit to, to an anarchist view, a polycentric view is that that trial and error, that, that we inevitably have to go through as we create law happens much more quickly and uh, much more effectively. We end up getting, producing better law, lower cost. And because uh, agencies are having to compete on the market, they're having to produce the best law, right? Otherwise they go out of business. So I actually think that a pro-life anarchist position is the most ideal when it comes to working out these, these issues um, in, in practice. And it can be done. It absolutely can be done. Um,
0: so the, the, the two things that come to my mind, because you, you kind of spoke about um, how there, there might have to be sort of an agreement in, in a jurisdiction or in an area uh, on this issue before you can really meaningfully address it which mm-hmm. I suppose is somewhat true in our system. You have to have at least sort of a majority agreement about this, or or at least a few Supreme Court, or a majority of Supreme Court justices at the very least. Yeah. Um, so there's that question. Um, you know, the, the second question, though, is, you know, when I think about private police, I'm thinking of uh, police who are are working for money, essentially, um, um, that their customers pay them directly. So they're not, there's not this kind of weird go between you have the public officials who sort of pay the, mm-hmm. the salary of the police. And, um, you know, I could imagine, um, you know, uh, a pregnant woman who has a contract with private police. I can't imagine a fetus, uh, creating a contact contract with the private police. Right. Uh, so what, what, what motivation or what, um, what economic incentive would there be for private police to protect the rights of a, of a fetus?
2: Okay. So here's the thing, police don't protect rights, right? They can't. (laughs) Um, In order for governance, whether public or private to protect, or when we say protect, what we're really saying is prevent crime, it has to become authoritarian, right? So it can't do that. when it comes to, you know, the, the, the fetus can't speak for itself, right? So what would happen, uh, like practically speaking, how this would play out is a family member who finds out that, you know, their sister or their mother or their, um, you know, their wife, whatever, uh, had an abortion. It's number one incumbent upon them to produce evidence, right? And uh, so they would have to they would have to actually produce the evidence. and that's really difficult to do if if I'm honest. Um, you know, a woman who takes uh, the abortion pill, unless you know that she's actually put that pill in her mouth and swallowed it, it looks like a miscarriage, right? You can't tell that she's had an abortion. So is it possible that there would be abortions that take place that go unadjudicated? Yeah. That's why we want the market. That's why we want these these options available to her so that when she's staring herself in the mirror uh, in her bathroom one day, trying to decide whether or not to swallow that pill or keep a baby that she's scared to death um, that she won't be able to raise, right? We want her to see that the dangerous, more expensive option is to take that pill. Um, Now, let's say a family actually does produce the evidence They would take it to one of these private courts, right, um, and adjudicate it. Now, there's any number of ways, and and, uh, anarchist theorists have have all talked about the different ways that you would actually get both parties to come to court. Um, I believe that both parties, you could get both parties to come to court. Um, I'm of the opinion that what would happen in that adjudication process is that something more along the lines of restorative justice would take place. I don't know if you guys have heard of restorative justice. Um, I did an episode about restorative justice uh, last month, I think it was. Um, But I think if you ask most people, should we cage this woman or put this woman to death because she had an abortion? I think most people would say no. No right? Most people would say that we, we would never do that, right? We want to make sure this doesn't happen again. So, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think a restorative justice uh, avenue would, would be taken. Um, but I think it's completely feasible and realistic that you can adjudicate this. It would be people who have evidence. Um, I think it would be more likely fem- family members, you know, the, the new Texas state law that says you can, you know, if you get wind of a woman who's, um, uh, who's had an abortion, you can civilly sue her. There's a lower threshold for, um, for the, uh, Oh, what's it called? I forget the term. Anyways, the, the evidence that you have to provide doesn't have to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt, just clear and convincing evidence. And then you get, you know, whatever the, the amount is. I think it's ten thousand dollars or something like that. Like that's close, but not quite, right? Um, I don't think that you would actually. I don't think it would play out like that in a polycentric polycentric legal order. What you would have is a motivation, um, not just on the part of the parties involved, but especially on the part of the people providing that adjudication service, is. Um, something that actually produces deterrence, something that actually reduces recidivism. And um, by all accounts, that's a restorative justice model. So I don't think you would have women being thrown in prison. I don't think you would have women being handed down the death penalty. You might have a few communities that act like that, but I don't think they would survive for very long because women just wouldn't go there. Um, And so I think it's completely feasible. I think in order for people to imagine it, they really have to reimagine what criminal justice is, how that plays out. What, you know, one of the things that I'm, uh, that I've said multiple times is that moral outrage is not justice and it's not a substitute for justice. And I think people inherently understand that. But this idea that we throw a book at a woman who's done something out of uh, you know, desperation because she's in a bad relationship or she can't, you know, she, she's poor, uh, is not something that we would as human beings would typically do. Can we still adjudicate it? Yep. We can still adjudicate it. Um, can we create law that says abortion is wrong? We don't want this to be a part of our society. Yep. We can do that. Can we create an environment through the the market that, uh, increases the options available so that the trade-off is too expensive, too dangerous to have an abortion. Yep, we can do that too. So I actually think that an anarchist or polycentric legal order is ideal for ending the practice of abortion.
0: And, and one example that comes to my mind, economic incentives to not abort would shift in anarchism. So adoption becomes easier for one thing, because we have all these sort of things in the way. But not only yep. really does it become easier, it actually could become um, you know, financially... I don't want to say lucrative because that makes it sound a little uh, mercenary, but you know, so a woman who has a baby that she doesn't want to keep and she doesn't want to raise, um, mm-hmm. th- there wouldn't be any barriers for uh, a potential adoptees to, to give her financial support to yeah. keep that baby, which right now that's, a, that's really kind of a complicated legal area because essentially you're buying people. Um, right. Well,
1: treated by the law.
2: <laughs> I mean, again, going back to economic terms, she's the owner of a means of production she, uh, women are going to, um, specialize in motherhood, right? And there are going to be mother, there are going to be women who don't specialize in motherhood. Um, and that's okay. And you're going to have accidents that happen and unplanned pregnancies that happen. If we have an understanding in the market that there are women out there who have specialized in motherhood, it, it becomes a no brainer. Adoption becomes a no brainer. Um, it's, it's so much easier. Um, and you know, who knows there might be, there, there might be other options. Um, I don't think that, uh, artificial womb technology is, is out of the question. I think that that's a, pardon the pun, viable solution to a woman who doesn't want to carry a baby to term to give it up to, for adoption. Um, so, you know, there's, what we need is more options available and not just that, but reducing the cost of motherhood. You know, I'm, uh, I mentioned it at the beginning that I'm a single uh, single mother of three. I work from home and I homeschool my kids, but I could not do that without inexpe- inexpensive laptop technology. You know, I can buy my kids a laptop for 200 bucks a piece and they can do schoolwork um provided by the market, either paid or free. Most of their homeschooling has been provided for free because I'm resourceful. But um, that reduction in cost has allowed me to homeschool my kids. And so uh, when I talk about options on the market, I'm not just talking about um, switching out abortion for something else. I'm talking about reducing the cost of motherhood um, because that makes a huge difference. And, you know, there's a reason why women are the primary consumers. It's because we're the ones who are making the decisions about what's best for our families and our, and our homes. Um, So it makes, economically, it makes absolute sense that women are in the position that they're in and why we need uh, a free market. Um, Women have, women have the most to lose from uh, abandoning free market principles and adopting socialism.
1: Hmm. So, uh, Johnny, go ahead. Thanks, Cody. I, I'm thinking as you're speaking, and it's kind of it's shocking to me that it's never been so frank as as this conversation. But the the inherent cost, regardless, like, you know, I don't know what the the rates are of sociopathy, but assuming zero moms getting abortions are sociopaths, like the the cost um, of making that decision. I, I have three children of my own. I you know, my, my wife is a an incredible mom but it's not as if like there there is a a, a loss of, of value as, a, as we were talking about earlier and i think that it makes it it, it softens the um the decision in some ways but like there, there's nothing just as you, you you have a hard time steering the the bulk of young you know toddler girls from dolls um and you know flexing that early like innate motherly reflex it's the same with an abortion like like the gravitas of of that decision and so Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of it's kind of funny like i I think if we asserted that more and just said like this isn't we're we're taking for granted that this is just some like even the procedure itself is not i mean if it's the procedure is not a a a low barrier or you know small obstacle to hurdle so um yeah. Which just, so when, well, I'm sorry, where do you get your information on, on expressed reasons for abortion? I've never heard of that being like aggregated.
2: Uh, the Gut Matcher Institute provides it. Okay. Um, Pro lifers pro-lifers don't want to, uh, uh-huh. oh. uh, again, want to, they don't want to give any credence, so they wouldn't take Gut Matcher seriously. But I've, I see no reason to not take Gut, gut Matcher seriously. But yeah, that's where I've gotten it from. Um, Which is
0: the, the, the that's the the research wing of plan, Planned Parenthood. I, I've heard it pronounced Gutmacher, but I, I don't know. If,
2: if uh, it might be yeah, one of but, the. But, a,
0: but that actually comes directly from Planned Parenthood, is, is my understanding.
2: Well, and I think you know the thing is, is that there's not really, in my mind, good reason to deny the research that. Gutmacher, however, you know, that they put out. Because, you know, when I said that women seeking abortions will um, choose to not have an abortion if their most basic needs are met, um, I'm admittedly twisting Gutmacher's words on that just a little bit. The thing that they say or the thing that they point out in their studies is that under Democratic administrations, the uh, abortion rate goes down. Well, why would that be? Well, they say um, that it's because welfare uh, programs are increased, right? Food stamps, Medicaid, those those sorts of things are are increased under Democratic administrations and they're rolled back under Republican administrations. Now, they use that as an argument for why we need welfare systems, right? Why we need food stamps, why we need Medicaid and that sort of thing. Um, But... If we're actually looking at it from a praxeological standpoint, what we're looking at is mom's most basic needs are being met. She's getting food. She's getting health care. She has you know money for rent. Um, those are her most basic needs. And so if we look at it from that perspective, then we know that uh, it's not just a matter of is she getting a government handout? It's can she actually provide for her child? And if she feels that, then she's more likely to keep Her baby.
0: Good. Well, there's a lot more we could, I think, talk about. We've gone on for a bit now, and I don't want to keep you all night. Um, So I just want to say thank you, Carrie, for being willing to do this. Um, Mirrorliberty.com is where people should go. Uh, You also have um, more than one podcast. There's the Mirror Liberty podcast, right? Yeah. And you're starting another one.
2: So, yeah, the um, Dare to Think is the name of the Mirror Liberty podcast. You can Google either one. Uh, but if you go to MaryLiberty.com, you'll find all of my stuff, including the Dare to Think podcast. The new podcast the new podcast is called uh, Reformed Libertarians. You can find that uh, at ReformedLibertarians.com. We actually just officially launched on November 11th, and we're doing a giveaway for people who are new subscribers. So you can go to ReformedLibertarians.com until November 21st um, to, to sign up for that. Um, but that's going to be. I'm really excited about that podcast because we're going to be diving pretty deep into theology and church history, and um, and also, of course, uh, the 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 philosophy uh, be- behind libertarianism, behind a- anarchism, and Austrian economic theory, and and really bringing those things together. So um, I'm really excited about it. Our first sort of series is on a number of uh, historical reformed theologians who expressed um, advocacy for a Christian political resistance, uh, um, an actual doctrine of political resistance, so um, very exciting, so you can go to either one. If you want to support my research and you want to see, um, you know, everything that I've talked about tonight um, get submitted for peer review, you can go to my website and support me as a monthly member.
0: And also, you also do work with the Libertarian Christian Institute, and I've Mm -hmm. heard you on their podcast from time to time as well.
2: Yeah, yep. I'm on staff with on staff with them.